Welcome to another episode of Block Street's Around the Block podcast. I'm your host, Elaine Ramirez, and I'm a journalist who covers startups, cryptocurrency, and blockchain for Bloomberg and Forbes. Around the Block is a series of conversations with thought leaders from around the space. On this episode, I speak with Jimmy Song. He's an investor, entrepreneur, and one of the most prominent voices in the Bitcoin community. This was our interview from the Voice of Blockchain conference recently hosted by the Chicago Blockchain Project. We talk about why Jimmy was first attracted to Bitcoin, his skepticism of some blockchain projects, including Ethereum and Bitcoin Cash, and the surprisingly deep reasons for wearing his iconic cowboy hats. It's a great episode, but before we get into that, if you haven't already, head over to the Block Street Twitter account and let us know who you think we should have on next. That's at BlockStreetHQ. You can also find it in the show notes. And for one final note, if you're listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It'll really help the show. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Jimmy Song. Tell me a bit about how you got into the blockchain journey. I know you got a you had a career in software development and engineering before this. How mm-hmm. did you get into blockchain? Uh, so I, I've been working at startups pretty much my whole career, uh, and I started right out of college. That was back in '98. Um, around 2011, I was reading this website Slashdot. It's like a new cipher nerds, basically. I know most of the stories that are that are on there, or at least something about it. And there was a story there in January of 2011 that I saw, which said Bitcoin has broken one dollar, and that was something I knew nothing about. So I was like, I, "What is this thing?" So I read into it and I, I started researching it, and almost immediately I was like, "Oh, that's really interesting." And uh, at the time, you couldn't really buy Bitcoin very easily. Believe me, I tried to find a way to buy Bitcoin easily, but I couldn't find any. Uh, there, there was a guy that was selling it for PayPal, but his account got shut down. Um, and really, the only way you could do it was through Mt. Gox. In order to get money onto Mt. Gox as a U.S. customer, you had to open a Dwala account. And that took like five days. I was like, uh, and I, I tried to start it, but it was just like too much work. So I said, forget it. I'm not going to do this. Probably one of the bigger regrets in my life, right? Like not buying Bitcoin <laughs> not at buying about a dollar. Uh, but it, it did intrigue me uh, largely because of the 21 million Bitcoin limit. I was like, okay, if this thing actually works, then I don't want to be one of the last people in. I should be one of the first people in. Um, you know, later that year, it went up to $30. And I was just like, all right, you know what? I, I got to go get some uh, and, you know, like by then, I think my Dwala account had opened and I was able to deposit to Mt. Gox and so on. Um, and I, I bought my first Bitcoin uh, doing that. So, yeah. Was it important to you to understand the underlying technology before you bought in? Uh, well, so I, I, I understood the economics. <laughs> you know, there's 21 million. Uh-huh. And uh, if I buy some, then it's a fixed amount of that quantity. Um, that's what I understood at the beginning. I didn't understand the tech. Um, and it was only like around 2013 after the first Mt. Gox bubble that I really started studying it. 
Ah, okay. So when you first got into the blockchain scene, mm -hmm. what excited you about the potential of uh, a blockchain and cryptocurrency? Yeah. So the the big thing for me was uh, was Bitcoin. I, I actually didn't believe in a lot of the other ones, and I still don't. The first project I got involved with was Color Coins, which was utilizing um, the Bitcoin network to do other assets. Um, there are lots of other things like that now. Uh, later on, of course, one of the people from the team ended up creating their own coin, which I didn't think would work, so I didn't go in on the pre-sale. His name was Vitalik Buterin, <laughs> and I didn't A buy- name we know well. Yeah, and I didn't buy any of the Ethereum because I didn't believe in it, uh, and I still don't. So uh, to, to a degree, you know, the thing that excites me the most about Bitcoin is its hard money properties. And that to me is the major innovation. It's decentralized digital scarcity. And that's something that we never had before Bitcoin. And none of these other altcoins or ICOs really have digi decentralized digital scarcity either. And, uh, and it's very unique in that regard. And I, I think it's very, very valuable because of that. And so that is why you don't think that Ethereum is sustainable? Yeah, I mean, I mean Ethereum is like pretty much a centralized thing. Uh, I mean, Vitalik bails out whoever he wants to bail out. He changes the incentives at whim. They hard fork every few months. Uh, I mean, they act exactly like a central government. And I don't see how that's very different than the U.S. dollar. Um, so there's no real like difference from a monetary standpoint. I mean, and that's to be fair, that's not what they were aiming for. They were aiming to be a platform for ICOs, which to their credit, they more or less done. For me, uh, you know, all of these other coins, they have a creator or some central point of failure, some choke point that the government can regulate. And that makes them much less valuable than something that actually has decentralization and digital scarcity. So this is a good time to talk about the fork of mm -hmm. Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash last mm -hmm. year. We mm -hmm. all kind of remember the drama um, mm -hmm. last summer. And you were quite critical about the Bitcoin Cash fork. Can you tell me about why? Well, I mean, I, I don't know if I was, say, critical. I, I, I think they did what they wanted to do, and that's everyone's right. If you want to fork off of Bitcoin, you can do it anytime you want. Uh, getting other people to follow you tends to be much more difficult. Everyone is sovereign over their own node. That's a principle that I think everyone should hold to. You, you follow who you want and nobody forces you to do anything. What I, what I will say, though, is that I don't think Bitcoin Cash is hard money. Um, I, they gained larger blocks at the expense of decentralization. They're now centralized digital scarcity in exchange for more transaction capacity. That's a, that to me is not a very good trade. It's, it's not very different than PayPal or Visa. They're all centralized. They can get choked. And if the government doesn't like it, they can probably shut you down. So, so on the side of Bitcoin Cash, what were the problems that they had with Bitcoin and did they resolve them? Well, they wanted bigger blocks. They wanted more transaction capacity. And this is more on the convenience side of money. Convenience features are portability, divisibility, fungibility, fast transaction speeds, and, uh, and stuff like that. The value aspects are scarcity, durability, 
immutability, unconfiscatability. And I, I, I make the argument that if you compromise the convenience features for the value features, you're making the wrong trade. And that's more or less what the Bitcoin Cash people did. I, I mean, they can try it, certainly, and it's, it's all voluntary, like I said, and it's absolutely their right to do so. But I don't have any Bitcoin Cash anymore, neither do a lot of people, and they got it for free. And for them, uh, it's, it's taking money from people on the other side of the trade, I, and I was very glad to do that. And how do you think that fork has impacted the overall markets for Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash? Um, I think it's made Bitcoin a lot more anti-fragile, so it's grown stronger as a result because a hard fork was something that a lot of people were scared of for a very long time. A lot of developers had to handle forks, right? Like they, they had to not only handle this fork, but every fork afterwards. I think it made Bitcoin stronger and better as a result. So what do you think needs to happen for let's say it's Bitcoin that will mm -hmm. be the ultimate cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. What do you think needs to happen for Bitcoin to reach critical mass where everyone has mm -hmm. a cryptocurrency? I think that'll happen eventually anyway. The hard money always wins. And this is very evident in places like Venezuela. If you have some bolivars and dollars and you want to buy some bread, which one are you going to spend, assuming you have a choice? you're going to spend your bolivars it's deflating at 10 percent a day and people get rid of their bad money as quickly as possible you know compared to the dollar bitcoin is much harder there's inflation on the dollar and don't believe the inflation statistics that the government tells you it's all manipulated i think it's closer to seven or eight percent and not one one or two if you look at asset prices and if you look at grocery prices and all that stuff but, you know, you're, you're getting your money taken away from you as a, as a part of uh, the dollar. Uh, and so I think we'll know that it's reached critical mass when merchants start demanding Bitcoin. So this is what happens in Venezuela, is that in the black market, you can't pay anybody bolivars for anything. They won't take it, right? They want dollars or something harder because they don't want to lose money if they hold the bolivar for like even uh, 12 hours that they lose like five six percent right if you have bread you're not going to take bolivars for it you're going to take dollars when that happens with bitcoin when the merchants are starting to demand bitcoin for some good or service that they provide that's when we know we'll have reached critical mass that's the threshold I think that we're looking for. Is that gonna happen in a year? Is that gonna happen in 10 years? Is that gonna happen in 100? I have no idea. That's really sort of a more market mentality and sociological question than uh, something that I can easily predict. Th those are not my areas of expertise. Uh, what do you think is the biggest issue facing blockchain development and adoption today? Oh, blockchain, I don't know. I, I'm very skeptical of almost every blockchain, quote unquote, project. Um, and Including I, Bitcoin? Other than Bitcoin, right? Uh, because blockchain is a technology that is very specific. You have proof of work, Merkle trees, public key cryptography, you know, Gaussian network, solution to the Byzantine generals problem, and so on. Uh, that's a very specific collection meant for money. Uh, almost every blockchain project that I've heard of is trying to fit a round peg into a square hole or something because it's 
putting a decentralized technology into a centralized system. It doesn't really work. So I don't think there is really a market for, or for blockchains per se. As far as Bitcoin goes, I think the biggest challenge that it faces right now is lack of developers. And that's something I'm trying very hard to fix. Interesting. Yeah. So now I'm going to ask you about this hat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My cowboy hat, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I've, I've noticed that quite a few people in the Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrency mm -hmm. industry like to wear hats. What's with yours? Well, so a, a lot of people wear like the Make Bitcoin Great Again hat or the Dragon's Den hat. And there, there's a bunch of hats. Most of them are like baseball caps, though. Right. Uh, Yours is a sturdy, no logo a, cowboy hat. Yeah, it's a Stetson, right? Uh, and I have a collection of cowboy hats. But I wear the cowboy hat for three reasons. First of all, I am from Texas. I, I live in Austin. You know, it's it's partly like a branding thing, but I wanted people to know that I am from Texas. Uh, second reason is because I liken crypto or this entire space to the Old West. There's a lot of opportunity, but there's also a lot of danger. I, I think it's an appropriate use of the hat, right, to, to represent that a little bit. And finally, I love that 19th century era because to me, that was the era of self-sovereignty. I mean, obviously there were minorities and stuff that didn't get the same opportunities. They weren't anywhere near self-sovereign, but the people that were got to do some really great things because they had freedom. They had the ability to contribute to stuff. If you think about America, it went from a backwater British colony in 1800 to a world superpower in 1900. What happened in those 100 years? Well, you had a lot of human creativity, ingenuity, in innovation that went into building civilization. And it, it wasn't just the US, right? From about 1870 to 1910, when the world was on the gold standard, it was called the Gilded Age. It was called La Belle Epoque for a reason. Everybody prospered because we were on a standard that allowed free trade and, uh, you know, like that era to me is what we'll go back to as Bitcoin takes over. When you give people self-sovereignty, uh, they do some incredible things. And, uh, and a lot of people tend to think of social good as just sort of helping humans survive. But I think that's thinking too little of humans because humans built everything build civilization. And that's not thinking enough of them if you're just trying to get them to survive. I think for real social good, you have to think about how to make people thrive. And they thrive when they have strong property rights, when they are self-sovereign, when they actually own the stuff that they have. And uh, right now we don't have that with money. I think Bitcoin is the path to people actually owning their money. And when you have that, then you unleash human creativity from every level. The problem isn't the particular party in power, the particular leaders that we have. The problem is that power is too concentrated. When you decentralize that power, you have people that are self-sovereign. That's the era that I want to go back to. That's why I wrote that. Perfect answer for that. There's a lot going on in that hat. Mm. So let's uh, start wrapping up. I uh -huh. want to talk a bit more about you. Mm -hmm. um, so now you are very much full-time in the, the Bitcoin game. What mm -hmm. does that look like in your daily or weekly life? 
Yeah, so that's been a very interesting thing. So I went full time, like not working for any company about a year ago. Uh, you know, I started with the programming blockchain business, which is where I teach a bunch of developers all about like the Bitcoin protocol. So they go from not knowing Bitcoin at all to, you know, being able to send transactions and knowing all about the protocol and everything like that in two days. So I teach them that. I've been doing it for about a year. I've done 21 such seminars. I've taught over 350 people. So that's that's part of what I do. Uh, but I, I've noticed that since I stopped working for companies, there's a lot more opportunity that I see, right? Like um, I started like hard forking coins for people because they didn't have the technical skill to do it. They didn't trust themselves to do it. So I'm like, okay, here's a way in which you can do it in a way where you don't have risk any of your Bitcoins but I can send you your hard fork coins. And they're very happy to pay me money to do that. So that that's like a side business. I'm writing a book, right, for O'Reilly. That's like an opportunity that sort of jumped out of nowhere. I'm a consultant for several businesses. Um, you know, I'm, I'm even like running a carnivory dinner, right? Like, because I realize like people like to get together. Uh, a lot of Bitcoiners wanna get together, hang out and talk about stuff. You can take a lot of the best parts of a conference without without having like the a conference. Well, yeah, having ICO pitches, which feel like timeshare presentations, honestly. So uh, like there there are lots of ways in which you can make money. Uh, oh, I forgot. I'm a venture partner at Blockchain Capital, too. Right. Like there, there's like so many things. I forget what I, what I'm involved in at times. But, you know, I, I have seven, eight, nine things that bring me income in some various ways. And uh, if any one of them stop, that's okay. I'm okay with that, right? Like, uh, you know, somebody somebody comes up with a better class than mine and, you know, all my business is taken away, I'm okay. And this was like a giant mental shift for me because, uh, you know, I even though I've worked in startups for something like 18 years, 19 years, up until about a year ago, I didn't realize I kind of had a wage slave mentality, right? Like I, I was bound by that employer, and uh, it was kind of fragile in a way because it's only one single employer that provides all your income. So, you know, all your eggs are in a sense in one basket. But at the same time, even though I had these ideas, I didn't really want to leave it because there's a security behind that because sure. they give you a regular paycheck or whatever. I, I got to tell you, it took me like a couple of months to build up the nerve to go out off on my own. And when I did... I was kind of scared, right? <laughs> I was like, what's going to happen to me? What if I fall on my face or whatever? And as soon as I did it, as soon as I like had that first class and I started having all of these ideas, I started working for myself. I was like, why the hell didn't I do this sooner? I should have done this 10 years ago. And there's something freeing about that. And I think that's what hard money brings. This motivation to work for yourself and save and do things that you wouldn't otherwise do to sort of grow yourself, stretch yourself. And, uh, and that's what my life has looked like working for Bitcoin and contributing to the hardness of the Bitcoin money. And, uh, and it feels awesome. <laughs> And, I, and this is what I wish for everybody in the world. And I, I think when you have hard money, I think this is what happened in the 1800s, right? It is, uh, is a lot of people were doing stuff like that, right? That, that whole mentality of, okay, if I go out there and risk everything and try something, you know, I can build civilization. That's, that's what a lot of people were thinking when they were going out west and building civilization on the frontier. Well, we don't have land frontiers really anymore. But we do have frontiers like Bitcoin. Good point. Yeah. 
So you are also about to publish a book called Programming Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. What do you hope to accomplish or what do you want to educate people about with this book? Yeah, so I, I have that seminar, Programming Blockchain, which uh, tells you about the blockchain of Bitcoin and uh, you know trains uh, developers at least up to that point in the Bitcoin protocol stack, if you will. Um, Programming Bitcoin is a book that I'm publishing for O'Reilly. And I hope to do the same thing that I do with that seminar, which is teach developers how to become Bitcoin developers. And I don't think there are necessarily that many good educational resources for uh, developers that want to get in. Um, and there's certainly demand for developers from like the industry side. There's a lot of uh, companies that are hiring that would love to hire lots of good qualified developers. And there are developers that want to get into the industry, but there's this gap of good educational resources to take them from A to B. And that's exactly what I'm aiming to do with the book. Mm, okay. Do you think that um, one of the barriers to adoption, is it more cultural or is it more technical? Do you think that people are hesitant because they don't understand mm. the technical aspects of Bitcoin or because they don't believe in the social benefits of it? Yeah, so I believe people are smart. thing about Bitcoin is it's only nine years old. And for people to really trust it, the only real good barometer is how long something has lasted. And like I said, as it lasts 10, 15, 20 years, it's going to make a big difference. So the big barrier isn't, say, cultural or technical per se. I would say it's just the human instinct. We're not there yet because it just hasn't lasted. And people obviously need to trust that Bitcoin will be stable for them. Mm -hmm. What do you see about the stability of Bitcoin prices? Yeah, so that's trying to peg the... Uh, Bitcoin price to the dollar in some way and I don't think that's really possible and that's because every central bank has three things that they want but it's impossible to get all three free capital flows you can go in and out of that currency at any time independent monetary policy so you have a particular monetary policy that you can go and change you can inflate it when you want you could deflate it when you want or whatever uh, and the third one is peg currency so you want it pegged to some other currency. You can't have all three. Um, but, you know, Bitcoin obviously has free capital flows, right? Every exchange you can go and buy and sell Bitcoin anytime you want, almost 24-7. It's, it's more free than the stock market. Um, second one is independent monetary policy. Bitcoin clearly has an independent monetary policy. It's 21 million. That's it. So you got two of the three. The third one's going to be impossible, which is a pegged currency to the U.S. dollar. Um, on the other hand, if it becomes dominant store value, that becomes the standard and people will be complaining about how the dollar is very volatile with Bitcoin. We'll get to that point, like I said, when merchants are demanding Bitcoin instead of dollars. Jimmy, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. That's it. A big thanks to Jimmy for taking the time to chat and an even bigger thanks to all of you tuning into this episode of Around the Block. As I said at the top of the show, if you enjoyed this podcast, please head over to the Block Street Twitter account. That's at Block Street HQ for a ton of great content. In fact, one of our Block Street videos on Twitter features Jimmy's take on why the price of Bitcoin is important. And finally, if you want to find me personally on Twitter, I'm at Elaine Gija. Again, thanks for listening. I'll catch you on the next episode.
This is Block Streets Around the Block, hosted by me, Elaine Ramirez. It was produced by Kenny Ferreira with research by Johan Yoon. Executive produced by Brian Lee and Ian Cho. This episode was recorded at the Voice of Blockchain Conference in Chicago, Illinois. If you'd like to hear more, you can find the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe if you liked the show. Thank you.